We are in the Gospel of Genesis, for those of you who are familiar. And we are in some really, really fun texts. We're in chapter 46, and if you've read ahead, you've probably gone, what are we going to do with this? We pick it up today, by the way, in verse 8. So just go ahead and read ahead for a minute there. Take a look and see what you're dealing with. It is such a gift to be able to enjoy a Sunday afternoon with you. It is such a treat for me. And to be able to have that good 40 minutes of sunshine that we got to share together this morning before we got back to typical London weather. We believe that all scripture is inspired. Um, and we'll, we'll tell people that. I mean, some people will be, I mean, either you're going to believe that the Bible's the authority, or you're going to believe that you're probably the authority, and therefore you can pick and choose what you want to pick. Um, I tend to find that people that do that don't pick it in regards to any other reason other than they just don't like it. Uh, they don't like it, it disagrees with where their patterns and lifestyles are. But even in our reading the scriptures, they'll find certain scriptures by virtue of how we read. There'll be certain scriptures that will read quicker than others. Um, they will believe it's all inspired, although we'll kind of go, well, there must be something in this I'm just not getting. And... Um, certainly our first, uh, our, our first 16 verses here, um, well, we're going to get one very simple point, and I can walk you through, oh, gosh, Lauren, did you ever, where's Lauren, did she just, Lauren, if she, she's gone, she's with the kids, oh, she's just, oh, that poor girl, she's probably in the toilet now, everyone knows it, uh, we actually had a, um, a tree, a, a family tree that would probably make it easier so you can look at it while I read these names. Um, so, Ali, do you want to go really quick and just see if you find her? Um, let's read it, but we're going to go beyond all of that. As a matter of fact, we may cover... Oh, hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Um, don't worry, no one noticed. It'll be our secret. Do you have a slide with the family tree? Uh, I just turned the projector off. Okay, Sorry. I can turn it back. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. That's probably this button right here, right? Um, so now you might be thankful you're not sitting in that seat right there. You'll feel like you've preached that the whole time. <laughs> well, yeah, let's go right to the Lord in prayer. As um, God warms up our hearts and the projector. <laughs> Lord, I do pray that your scripture would burst open and come alive for each of us. I thank you for the honor that it is to open your word and expect you to speak. I thank you for every soul you've brought into this room. And what a beautiful, brilliant thing you've done here. The family that you're building, the lives you're changing, the society you're creating, community right here. With the intent, ultimately, of taking all of these tanks and putting them in the valley, so to speak, <coughs> to claim great victory in this country. We do pray for the salvation of our country. We pray, Lord, for the transformation of our city. First, we pray for the radical, engaging, countering, and transformation of ourselves as we open your word now. May your word speak personally, powerfully, profoundly to each of us. Oh God, have your way, please. We thank you for the sheer magnificence and brilliance of it. To what you would put in not in Scripture, May we be ministered to everything by everything you wish to tell us in this time. In Jesus' name, fill me with your Holy Spirit. That you would serve through me and do through me what I cannot humanly do. May we truly, truly have fun in your text now. And be ministered to perform the therapy you intend, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. You've got that gorgeous book in front of you that more brilliant men than I have ever tried to destroy it and only found themselves giving their life to Jesus in the process. So, 
in everything. And if you could bet if I say that about me, I'm going to say that about everything you listen to and watch and see and read. Let be all things tested by this. And if someone calls themselves an expert, I've learned you can be an expert in nonsense. And so I've met a few of those in my days, so they probably think the same thing. Anyways, here's where we pick it up. In verse 8 it says, Oh, look at that. Now these are the names of the children of Israel. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And then we get into the list. Go ahead and put it on there, Lauren, if you would, please. Sure. Um, when it comes time. Which will be now. And uh, we went last week as we, we talked about that transformation between Jacob and Israel. The same person given two names and in essence two very different distinct characters. And now what we really see, and then again, and I only say that even now just to spark your, to sort of wet your whistle as you look at those things that God lists as Israel, that person that has struggled with God and in his surrender as one, and that person um, who is Jacob, the old man, that ripoff, that, that, that person who's always kind of fighting and trying to make it happen. And, and by the way, with each of us, we're going to find that. There is that part of us, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is that old man that has been crucified. Scripture says you are a new creation. You're not just a polished up old model. You're not just a redecoration or a relocation. You are a reinvention. The problem is, is that there's so much of us that's used to the old guy, we'd rather put on that dead body that Jesus crucified than walk in the newness of the one he intended. And, and so what we find with people like Simon to Peter or Jacob to Israel is we see the life of an individual who's still in the balance. He's in that place where there's that sense of flux. That place where there's good moments when he's Israel and bad moments when he's Jacob. Much like a lot of, well, like all of us, to be honest, if you've given your life to Christ. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm just going to make it as simple and plain as I can. You are an old creation full of the guilt that you stand in, that you've done, and no matter how many good works, you still stand in that guilt. Now, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. What I'm here to do is let you deal with that guilt. There is a God who so loved you, insatiably, irreversibly, and obsessively, that He would rather die than live without you. So much so that He would send His Son Jesus to die on the cross so that all your guilt, and my guilt, and Landon's guilt, and, and, and everyone here, Elena's guilt, and Marcia's guilt, and Gina's guilt, and Jeffrey's guilt, all of it could be nailed to the cross. And in that, though, Jesus didn't, I mean, the gospel doesn't end with Jesus' death. None of the four gospels end with Jesus' death, because if it was, it wouldn't be that great news. Great that the debt has been paid, but the best you have at that point is repenting and leaving that guilt. But his resurrection tells us there's a new life on the other side. The death is that the place of the cross is the place of sacrifice. The place where the person I am gets laid down. It's the, the empty tomb that says there's a new place, a new me, a new invention that no longer is self-governed and self self-centered and, and egocentric and everything revolves around me. But now somebody that actually can see you in the picture and actually seek to serve you. And, and really, to be honest, be a radically different individual. And that becomes the problem. And that's why, to be honest, if all we do, and I'm going to say this carefully, but try to say it clearly, that if all we do is preach the cross, who wants that? The cross is the place of sacrifice. The cross is the place that says, Oh, I can't sleep with my girlfriend anymore. I can't go out and get drunk with the boys anymore. I can't cheat on my taxes anymore. I can't do those things that, to be honest, the world has sold me as the most fun. I can't live my life for me anymore. And if that's all I give them, then who would want that? Let's be honest. It's the empty tomb, the resurrection, which, by the way, the book of Acts is rife with examples of people who are witnesses of more than just his death, but his resurrection. Romans says that he was declared by that resurrection, by the Spirit of God, to be the Son of God. And we say, Jesus died on the cross for you so you could leave that person behind, but he rose again to give you a new one. Now all of a sudden we start seeing these places where God says Jacob, and some places where God says Israel. And we see those places where Jacob sort of is sort of defaults back to the old man, and places where he kind of moves forward as the new. Now, the problem is, is that all of Jacob's children were born under Jacob. Some of them were old enough to watch Jacob become Israel. But in the end of it all, Jacob is a man in a state of progression and evolution. And as he is, 
there's going to be a bit of Jacob in all of the boys. Even as there is going to be, to be honest, a hint of Israel in them as well. So this is what we read. The sons of Reuben, first son, Sia's son is his name, are Han. And by the way, why don't you say it back at me so you feel like you've said a lot of Hebrew with me? Hanoch means dedicated. Palu means distinguished. Oh, there's less of you already. Hezron, it's a courtyard. It's probably where he was born. And then Carmi, Carmi, which by the way means gardener. Who names their child the gardener? That's already asking for rumors. Okay, second, the sons of Simeon, Yemuel. Yeah. Means the day of God. Yamin, like we be Jamin, means left handed. Um, Ochad, means unity. Yachin, which means he will or it will establish. Zohar, don't mess with him. Um, his name means whiteness. And Shual, Shual, by the way, it means sought after, like Saul. We'll see a couple of one in the Old Testament, the first king of the unified kingdom, and then of course Saul that becomes Paul in the New Testament. Sons of Levi are Gershon, which by the way means refugee. Kohat, by the way, I'm allied. By the way, Kohat to this day is the priestly tribe. If you meet anyone with the last name Kohen, that's where this tribe comes from. They can actually trace their lineage, if they're able to, back, unless they change the name, to the priestly tribe. It's the Kohens, or the Kohenites, they still look for today in Israel. If your last name is Kohen, you may actually get a position as a priest when they want to rebuild their temple, for what it's worth. And, and Marari. Marari, like bright red Marari. Just kidding. Marari means bitter. Sons of Yudah were Ur, which means watchful. Thank you. Onan, the barbarian, strong. Shila, which means request. Perez, which will be of great importance because he will be the one who will be the father ultimately in the lineage of our Messiah. Zera, which means a rising light. But Erdogan, by the way, died in the land of Canaan, so he kind of removes them from the list of the people who are coming because they're dead, so they won't be coming. The sons of Perez, now we have grandchildren, are Hezron, which we've already seen already, on this is courtyard, and then Hamui. And Hamui, by the way, means pity. Who names the child pity? All right, next. Issachar, or Tola. This is one of my favorites. The name means worm. Now, those of you who have been there at birth, with all due respect, but they grow, they become something, yeah, yeah, you know. Puva, which means a blast. <laughs> One of my favorites, Yob, which by the way means howler. By the way, you usually name your baby if it's a boy, eight days on the day you circumcise him, eight days later. So you had eight days to kind of figure out what you want to name him, think about that, and then you named him Howler. You kind of get the idea. Already, I want to pray for Issachar. Shimron, which means guardianship. So there's Zebulun, where Sadeh, which means to tremble. Kind of get an idea about that boy. Elon, which means big oak. And Yalil, which means expectant of God. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Yaakov, notice Jacob, and Padanaram, with his daughter Dinah. All of the persons, the sons and daughters, were 33. Now, the sons of Gad were Zipion. Which means big watchtower. Hagi, like Hag. To this day, they still use that term like Hag Simaach. Hag means happy. Like Hagai, the prophet, and his name means festive or happy, which is ironic when you read Hagai. But Shuni, which means to rest or be quiet. <laughs> be quiet. You name your child, be quiet. <laughs> um, you just spend the rest of your life saying that. Esbon, Eri, which is watchful. Avrodi, roving. Never sit still. And then Areli, heroic. And then Asher, now we've got Son of Asher, we have a Yimna, which means, by the way, prosperity. I love it. How would you like that? As a parent, they name their child like, This is my riches, this boy. And I kind of like that. Um, those of you who are pregnant, I know there's a few of those in here, you can be shopping for names as you get through this. Um, Yeshua, Samir, like, What's your name? Ashpanah, Ashpanah, What is that? I don't know, my dad read it at a falafel shop. Um, Yeshua means he will level. Isui means level. Beria, this is one of my favorites as well. Beria means in trouble. <laughs> yeah, how would you like to have that name in school? All right, Sira, and that's really sad. It means redundant, which is a girl, sister. The sons of Beria, now we have grandchildren, are Heber, like where we get the term Hebrew from means community, 
and Machiel, which means, by the way, king approved by God. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and she bore then Jacob 16 verse. The sons of Rachel, this is, by the way, Jacob's favorite wife, he's got four here, um, where, and by the way, God does not condone it, just because God blesses it, he's, what he's doing is he's being honest. And it says, were Joseph and Benjamin. Now Joseph, um, now it says, to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born these two boys. The first is Manasseh, would you say Manasseh? Manasseh. And what a powerful name his name is, he makes me forget. And remember, Joseph had been sold off, he'd been put into slavery, uh, into Egypt, and it's his child, he was, he's able to look at him and go, you know, just looking at you makes me forget how rough my life was. And I, I, I understand that. I look at my children and I, I don't see where I came from. Praise God, I see where I'm going. Um, which is usually chasing me after them. Um, <laughs> and then Ephraim, Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. Um, which is that, that was a great name for a second kid, right? I've got double the fruit now of you. Um, whom Asenath, the daughter of, and one of my favorite names as well, Pari Farah, um, who is the priest of Onbordon. And the sons of Benjamin were Bela, which means gulping. Probably kind of get that idea after eight days of watching your boy. This is one of my favorites too. Becher. Says, oh, try it, come on. Becher. Which means camel, a young camel. If you've ever been around camels, that's no compliment. Um, Ashben. Means flowing, and uh, as a parent, I'm not going to take that any farther. But it makes me laugh. Um, Gera, yeah. which means grain or a grain of something. Another good one, Naaman, which, by the way, like the prophet Naaman, means pleasant or comforting. What a great name for a kid! As a matter of fact, perhaps you're familiar with the place that Jesus sets up headquarters called Capernaum, which is Kafer, Nafim. To this day, Kafer means little village of. So, Kachernaum means village of comfort. So, there you go. And that's where my king sits up. And he means brotherly, to this day, eh, still. Uh, Rosh means shakes. Uh, and then Muppet, just getting Muppim, which means wavings. And then Huppim. Uh, maybe they're twins, you think? Muppim and Huppim? Blow your house down. Huppim, by the way, means coming. You know, they're probably looking down from heaven going, oh, come on, really? Like that's not been said before. <laughs> These were the sons of Echel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. A little, some surprise here is the tribe of Dan, he has one son named Hushim. You say Hushim? Hushim, which means, by the way, people who are really hasty, hasty people. And Dan, Dan by the way, for those of you who are Bible students, and I pray you all would become in time, that um, Dan is a... Um, He's a bit of an anomaly. You'll find at the end, when you get to the book of Revelation, when they do all these tribes that are all anointed and prepared to be evangelists, Dan's missing. There are many who believe that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. I can't tell you that in full sincerity, but I can tell you that's, you know, for those of you who get buzzed on that stuff, there you go. The son of Naphtali was Yazid. means God will give or a lot. Guni. Guni means protected. Yetzer means a framed thing. And then Shilem, which by the way means requital. And I, and in like, I, I didn't, in, in other words, it could be as if you let your youngest son was named, I didn't do it. <laughs> See, you know who laughs at those moments? Parents. Parents who laugh at those kind of things. I understand. Now, these are the sons of Bilcha, who, who Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went then to Egypt were 70. Now you kind of read all this and you think, you know, there's some things that people like, does God say something about this in Scripture? And it's the same person who will also say this book's so big. Why didn't God put that in Scripture? But you already complained the book's too big. And then you read this and you go, well, then why did God put this in? Well, let's come up with a very simple thing. And that is that Joseph's family, God knows every one of them by name. Did you notice that? Now for the person who says, this was just a bunch of hand-me-down stories from one bored Jewish guy to the next bored Jewish guy, do you really think that 70 names make it into an old Jewish story? God is very careful to write down to great detail. He knows every one of these people by name. Now, I want you to find, to, to kind of follow me on this, go ahead and go to the other one if you would, Lauren, the other slide. Um, 
that as, as, we, kind of, as we kind of move now into our, our back into our narrative text, we're going to kind of get the idea that there's going to be two basic people, groups of people in Egypt. To be honest, it's going to be the Egyptians and Joseph's family. Those are the only two real groups of family or groups of people that are kind of listed. Does that make sense? Now, God does not list anyone. Matter of fact, he doesn't even list the Pharaoh's name by name. But he does list every one of Joseph's family, or one of every one of Israel or Jacob's family. Now, in the end of it all, Israel is going to get a tremendous amount of blessings. There are a lot of blessings to be in Joseph's family. And you would want to be in Joseph's family in this moment. We are in the middle of a famine. We're aware of that. And we're in the middle of a famine to where what we're going to see basically for the next chapters we follow through this into chapter 47, this is going to be a comparison between Joseph's family and all of the Egyptians. And what you realize is, wouldn't it be great to be part of Joseph's family? Because Joseph's family gets all the benefits of a good family, is where everybody else in the world is going to have to ultimately surrender everything just to stay alive. Now, what you have then are a group of people who are going to be lavished with a handful of blessings. And for those of you note-takers, I want you to know, if we went from this all the way through the rest of chapter 47, what we would be comparing is the benefits of the family on this side versus the factor of the family. Because that's what we really have. You have the family factor in the last half, and in the first half, we really have what it means to be part of the family. Now, follow me in this. There are only three different ways that you can become a member of a family. Think about it. Now... This is one of those moments where you get to, you know, kind of openly say something. What are those three ways a person becomes part of the family? You're born into it. Right, that's it. Now, you don't have a choice in that, necessarily, in this case. You know, you kind of woke up one day, and somebody was there, and they're like, oh, so cute. And now, the chances are, that was your family. Okay, so you could be born into a family. How else? Married into the family. That's true. You could be married into the family. What's the third? Adoption, right? Aren't those the three ways that you could become a member of a family? Do you realize that? I mean, if we, if when we compare this, and because what we really want to do is look at Jesus in this, is that the difference between the people that belong to Jacob's family and the rest of the world is the difference of those that are part of God's family, those that are surrendered to Him. And what I find in that is, is that the same three ways that you could become part of Joseph's family or Jacob's family are the same three ways you become part of the living gods. You have to be reborn. You accept the gift of Jesus Christ, his payment on your behalf. And in doing so, God says you have been born again. And therefore, there will be people who say, I'm a Christian. And you might get asked by someone, are you born again? Because anybody could call themselves a Christian. I mean, you can walk into McDonald's and actually say you're a hamburger, but that doesn't make you one. <laughs> you can walk into a church and say you're a Christian, and some people will believe you. You can buy the clothes or work for one day at McDonald's, quit, keep the polyester clothes that are too small and too short, and then walk in the next day and say you're working, and someone there will believe you. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Best Buys, but they're kind of places that sell kind of, you know, electronic products. They're kind of like one of the curries in America. And, and they all kind of wear the same outfits. They wear khaki pants and the trousers. And they wear, <laughs> that could be uncomfortable. And then they wear sort of this, this blue, almost a neon blue polo shirt. And, and that's it. And so one day they did one of those flash mobs and they brought 3,000 guys to a really, really, really large Best Buy, all dressed in khaki trousers and, and, and blue um, polos. And it just freaked out everyone. Nobody, they were all like, wow, there's so many people who work here. And then they, they kept asking, excuse me, could you help me? And they're like, no, I don't work here. Everybody was so confused. Now, the reason I say that is just dressing up in a certain way or acting like it doesn't make you an employee. And just kind of saying, you can change your last name, but it doesn't make you. I mean, you could say, you could, you could decide, you know what, I decided from this point on, I want to be Marcia Windsor. That's got a nice ring to it. But it doesn't make you a relative of the queen just because you changed your name. You know, and the reason I say that is, is that God in his infinite love for you has paid all of the price that it takes. But he also wants to, the Father in heaven wants to adopt you as his own. And that's what we read in scripture. So when someone says God has no sons, well, that God is very different from mine because my God has a lot of sons. And adoption is still open. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, God would love to adopt you today. 
Jesus presents himself as the bridegroom because he wants to know. In the end of it all, how can you doubt you're a member of God's family when the only three ways you become a member of the family, all three of them are used to make you a member of the family. You are closed, signed, sealed, and delivered a member of his family. Now, as I look at this text now, kind of wet in the whistle on this, there is only one area that is experiencing a great deal of flourishing, even when the rest of the world is in tremendous chaos through a famine. And that is this Nile Delta area, which, by the way, is the area of Goshen. Now, does anyone know, and it would be weird if you did, what the word Goshen means? Does anyone? The word Goshen, to be honest, means to be drawn together. And I love that term. God's like, I want to put you in a place that means let's be together. Let's be drawn together. Not just you guys get to hang out. And this is the one place, by the way, where they're going to go. And we're going to see again are the benefits of the family here. And then we see the famine factor. So here's what it says. In verse 28, Then he sent Judah to go before Joseph, go, sent him to Joseph, to point out the way to Goshen. So one of the first things that I know I get as a benefit of a family is I get guidance. And you know what the cool thing is? The guidance is simple, it's clear, and it isn't full of opinion. When I read the Bible, there's some stuff you'll go, I don't get that. And you know what I've learned? With each of us, as God is building, God's not going to build his 15th floor before he builds the first 14. And there are some of us, it's like, I just gave my life to Jesus yesterday, and how come I don't understand all of Revelation? It's like, maybe that's a sixth-floor thing for you right now. Why don't you get the basics when he lays the foundation? Because if you got that first, that would be a weird building. And all of a sudden, you're like, I know all prophecy, but I can't tell you who Jesus is. That's a really bad idea. And you realize there's some people, it's like, and it can really be diverting. Now, not that that stuff's not good. It's great. But the bottom line is, you can't decorate a house that isn't built yet. Imagine moving in the couches, but the walls aren't even in yet. Well, in this country, that's a bad idea, because it's going to rain before the day's over every day. <laughs> you better hope that stuff's patio furniture at that point. And we get guidance. Now, I want to warn you. There's a difference between being cocky and being confident. When the scripture says something, I'm confident in it. Now, I don't have to get cocky and in your face. But there's a difference when everyone else is running from one thing to the next. And you stand still because, to be honest, God said that's kind of dumb and that's kind of dumb. Stay right here and you stay right here. And people are like, hey, that's all. We're all going over here. We're all going to do this. And you're like, no. no. What's wrong with you? Because God said no. Oh, God, the spoils part. And then they all go over there and get whacked up a little bit. And then they kind of come and run over this way a little bit. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm still here. And then they run over there a little bit, and then they kind of get mucked about over there, and then they come back in the middle, and they look at you, and you're like, you know what, I, I've never needed to run those things, because the Lord says, this is the road I have you on. And there's something beautiful about that. And what's beautiful is, is Joseph, was, Joseph sent Judah, Judah was ultimately sent to Joseph, Joseph sent him back, so that he could lead them, so they don't have to wander around. You go, well, what about that time in the wilderness? It was a time of faithlessness. And that will be the difference. It's your faith that connects you to your guide, Jesus the Christ, so that you don't have to wander around aimlessly. You go, well, I don't have all my answers. Here's the weird thing, is that what you start to get, and tell me if this makes sense, friends, is what you start to get is God's priorities. And when you get God's priorities, all of a sudden you start going, well, this area is a little less clear, but this area is a little more clear. And in life, before I knew Jesus, this was the most important thing. And so here you are, you're 17, you're 18, you're 22, you're 25, and the one thing you want to know is who you're supposed to marry. And God hasn't shown that to you right now, because to be honest, he doesn't want you married right now to anyone but him. But on the other side of it, this is what he's made clear. What he has made clear is that every time you open up his word, every time you're in fellowship, every time you are praying, you sense the pleasure of God. And you go, well, that's what I made clear for a reason. And you can, the crazy thing is, you could step into this and go, well, I'm going to read and pray so I can find out. I'm going to go to church so I can meet my husband. You know? And God's like, well, you should meet your husband, and it should be me, Jesus speaking, not me, Pastor Tony. And, <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it's funny because there are, there are days where it's like, you know, I just don't feel like the Lord has responded. Well, what was your prayer? Well, the prayer was, do I wear the red shirt or the green shirt today? I just know because if it's, if it's against God's will and I wear the wrong one, I'm sure I'm going to spill gravy on it. You know, and God's like, stop. That's not all the word will means. The lamb means his pleasure. And what if you ask God, what would please you at this moment? What's amazing is we can actually not be in his word. We can not be in prayer and still try to figure out what the will of God is and whether we eat it Mexican or Italian today. You kind of go, you really think that that's my priority? But we get guidance, friends. And we get guidance because, to be honest, Jesus didn't die with us to send us to heaven. Jesus died with us to be with us. Heaven's the product of that. And Jesus isn't just going to give us the way. He is the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6 makes that clear. Well, so here it is. So he sent Judah again, performed to Joseph, to point out the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. The second benefit, by the way, is Goshen. It is the land, the only place where people get plenty. It's the only place of satisfaction. It's the only place of abundance. Everybody else is starving to death everywhere else, chasing after satisfaction, empty and desperate, but won't tell you, and they're running around like crazy, trying to meet something they don't even know what. And God says, I'll give you Goshen. It'll be the one place they will live until they're delivered in the book of Exodus. They will be, Goshen will be the one place that's light when every other place is dark. Goshen will be the one place that isn't getting rained on by hail while every other place is. Their livestock's okay. Well, everyone else's is dying. The stuff is caving in. Everything is caving in. And Goshen's the one place that's a refuge. Can I just say plainly, if you want a place where you feel like it's half the world and half Jesus so that you can kind of feel like it's a bridge or whatever, can I just say that's never going to be my intention? I hope you get undiluted pure heaven. Because you can get hell anywhere else. You can get the world anywhere else. And I pray this could be a refuge. A place so weird that it's intriguing. Not weird for weird's sake. It isn't like I'm going to come out with tinfoil on my head or something. But I, I, not, no, not today. <laughs> but you get Goshen. You get this place and where the Lord wants to lead you. And you know, all of this takes us to a simple psalm. And that's Psalm 23. And when you get to there, and on your own time, compare that to this text, because the idea of it is that you make me, you make me lie down on green pastures, by green pastures. It doesn't even say, you lead me to them, and just go, go ahead and lay down when you want to. You actually make me lay down there, because I'm so dumb, I won't even lay in the good pasture that you put me in, because I'm too busy trying to chase after something that's like nasty patch. You know, I'm too busy chasing after like nasty, poisonous weeds, but they're prettier. Look at those flowers. I want to nibble on those. And you go, sit down, sit down. You ever have those moments where the Lord, you're like trying to get somewhere and the Lord's practically breaking your legs to get there? You know, so you can't? And you're like, I don't understand it because this looks so good. And God's like, it looks so much better than it is. And he goes, the good place right now is to sit still. Sit still and let me love you. Let's go. So Joseph, verse 29, made ready his chariot. And he went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. Notice he's Israel here, not just Jacob. And he presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Not only do we get guidance, not only do we get Goshen, I get greeting. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but there is going to be a moment when this dream you're living right now is going to end, and you're going to wake up. And when you do, you're going to stand before the one who died for all mankind, who bore every rotten thing, who knows you by name. Nothing else is going to matter. Every hurt, not only will you not feel it anymore, you won't even remember it. Every cruel joke, every failure, every regret, every struggle, you ever wake up in the morning and go, oh no, another day where I have to fight that again? Never again. Now at that moment, if you're anything like me, I kind of get the idea the Lord will be like, well, you kind of made it on a technicality, come on in. But that's not what we read in Scripture. I read 
And I'm sure every one of us are going to be like looking behind us at who we really think he must be talking to. <laughs> now, I mean, at that moment, you can almost think that the Lord would be like, you know, there was all these opportunities you blew. But to be honest, that's not that moment. This isn't the moment for that. This is the moment to welcome you home. And, and welcome you home. And what it says is, at that moment, I will be as pure. No, no, that's not exactly what it says. What it says is, I will know him. I will know him as I am known. And it says, whoever has, listen, listen, listen. Whoever has that hope in him is as pure as he is pure. If you have that hope that there is going to be a day you're going to stand before him and every struggle, every filth, every nasty, anything that involves sin, not just somebody sinning against you, not just walking through the street and seeing people barf and you're hoping they don't do it on your shoes, but you don't even remember your own sin. You don't feel the effects of it. You don't see a world governed by it or affected by it. But now you're in a place where sin has never been. That's your home. And he goes, if you hunger for that, then that's your hope. There's pure as Jesus is pure. John tells us that in 1 John. Now, what exactly do you think a person who doesn't have, isn't a member of this family has to look forward to? Like, well, the best thing I can hope for is that I don't live beyond this and that I just bury me in the ground. What a warm greeting that will be. There is somebody who loves you like no one on earth could. I mean, loves you. I can't wait for you to shed the thing you struggle with the most so that all that's left is you and him with nothing, nothing in between, nothing in between. And this boy sees his dad and he's so happy. He is just and I get the idea that Joseph wasn't much of a crier, but we have a lot of him crying in Scripture, don't we? And by the way, what a beautiful moment to show us Israel instead of Jacob. Listen to this statement. Verse 30. Now Israel said to Joseph, not Jacob. Israel said to Joseph, Ah, now I am dying, since I have seen your face, because you're still alive. Now, this could be funny if you take it the way that we would in a Western culture, because he's going to live 17 more years. So that's a really long death. You know, like, you know, I've seen some long dying scenes offered for, you know, traditionally. But the idea, what, what does a man say when he says this? To be honest, um, the American Indians do this kind of thing too, to some degree. And that is that they kind of get this idea wherever they die is the place where they think they'll kind of, that state is where they'll spend eternity. I don't agree with that comment. But it's kind of, and that's why, by the way, they go crazy when you put them in jail. The, the people that are in that particular situation. Now, the idea is simple. What he's saying is, in the simplest sense, my life is complete. I am satisfied. You will not have to add anything else. There's nothing you can add. Listen, listen, listen. There is nothing you could add to my life right now or ever that will make this any better. Listen to that statement one more time. There is nothing you could add to my life now or ever that will make it better because I've got the son of promise. Now you know the problem is if we believe that, which by the way, back in Psalm 23, isn't that how it starts? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What do you think that means? I am so satisfied. I don't foam at the mouth when the new iPad or iPhone comes out. <laughs> I don't have to get the new thing because I can pinch it and squeeze it and twist it and turn it and colorize it and so forth. I don't have to. I could die single on earth. I could die married on earth and be okay. I could die never getting that thing I thought I should get. Maybe we'll never own that house here. I've got a mansion waiting for me and where home is. As a pastor, it's very likely we will not own a home here or ever anywhere on this side. But 
this is all temporary anyways, and if I have the option between one or the other, I've already won the lottery in heaven, how about you? This is, this is it. I'll take, I'll take the weaker here. But could you imagine, friends, honestly, honestly, beyond all the rigmarole, could you imagine if just this group of people in here, this week, lived a satisfied life, satisfied in the Son of Promise, what that would do to every person who stared at us, watched us, criticized us, tried to make fun of us, and actually asked if we were a real Christian? Could you imagine? Now, listen to this verse. It's in the book of Proverbs, and it says, To the hungry soul, even the bitterest thing is sweet. But the satisfied soul loathes the hungry. Let me ask you something. There's a place to blurt out, just because I want to see what, uh, what I can hear in here. What's your favorite dessert? Just say it. Apple crumble. Apple crumble. Who else? Somebody said it. Oh my goodness, look at that. That was like almost in unison. Apple crumble. Okay, what else? Chocolate fudge brownie. What's that? Lemon tart. Lemon meringue pie. Cheesecake. Strawberry cheesecake. What's that? Strawberry cheesecake. Strawberry cheesecake. Specific. What's that? She said tiramisu. We're gonna avoid that one for a moment. Okay, anything else? My my when Suzanne, my wife and our oldest, went to Bath for a couple days on a mother daughter trip. Glory to God. My youngest says, Well, can we do something too? And I said, Well, let's go to a, let's go on a trip too. Where do you want to go? She says, Paris. <laughs> what are you watching? <laughs> and finally we kind of look and we see and we realize we can't afford to go to Paris. But we look and finally I'm like, well, would it be okay if we, we found something that was literally one, well, one-fifth the price to go into Calais? Still French. We still speak French there. I'm not exactly sure. And so as, as I'm kind of asking, I want to get down and I'm like, honey, what, why do you, you want to go to Paris? What is it about Paris? So see if I can figure out how we can transfer it to someplace cheaper. And she said, I just want a creme brulee. <laughs> how totally sweet. And I went, okay, well I tell you what, let's go to Calais. And well, and she's like, where is that? And I says, it's still in France. She goes, oh, there's more places in France than Paris. <laughs> and I go, don't tell the French. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we did. And we had two creme brulees apiece, I tell you. Um, and I just, I just think about it. The reason I say that is, is I know my daughter well enough to know. By the way, she can out-eat me. She's one-third my size, but she can out-eat me. What she loves more than anything is meat. If she was any more a carnivore, all of her teeth would be pointed. And, and I know this, the, the dream for her is, any of you been to a Brazilian barbecue? That is a gift from God. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm convinced. I mean, it's like you sit at a table and they bring you barbecued meat until you can't eat anymore. And, and when we go to that place, I kid you not, that little girl ate twice the amount of meat I did. I don't know how she did it. You'll see her come, you know, it's a little bit anyways. Um, but in that, when you are satisfied, before that point, there's all kinds of things that look really good that are desserts. But the moment you are full, you are full, dessert doesn't even sound good. Now, for some of you, you think that's impossible. <laughs> we will tell you, I'm full. I'm full up to here. And I'm like, well, we have dessert. We're like, oh, no, no, I found this spot. Right? <laughs> Anyways, but it's like, but, but as, a, as a human being, there are appetites beyond our stomach. And we have an appetite, for instance, for companionship. God created us for that so that we would call out to Him and actually, to be honest, to be satisfied in Him. But here's the thing you can try to make that in a friend or a best friend or a spouse. And a lot of marriage counseling comes from the fact that you tried to find that hole, you tried to meet that appetite. With a, with a human being that God created for God. And no human being is capable of filling a hole God made for himself. And then they're disenchanted. And they're like, I thought I would be, you know why? Because I watched enough Disney, and in my teen years, everything's about falling in love. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, that looked like it satisfied them. But did you notice it's like they finally meet, then they just cut and say they lived happily ever after? So you don't have to see how they have to work out everything after that point? You just go, well, it must be perfect then. Well, no, that's why they don't make sequels to those things, you know? There's a reason, because 
hearts. All of a sudden, happily ever after is a little bit more work. And it's because that's, you know, even if, in reality, it takes more. And the reason I say that is, the hungrier you are, the better your own socks look. I mean, you, you, you get to that point where you'll go, ah, I'll never eat a bug. Yeah, you will. You know, and it's, it's like the hungrier you get, things that look really gross start looking good. And the hungrier you are, and other appetites will be the same. I never thought I'd do heroin. I never thought I'd go out and get drunk all the time. I never thought, oh, what would happen? Well, I got hungry. And the worst things look better. Jacob, Jacob is giving us a moment that's an Israel moment. The new man moment. And the new man says, I'm satisfied. I don't need to do that. It isn't that I... It isn't just that it's like, you know what? I'm not going to do drugs because God says don't do drugs. I don't need to do it. I'm satisfied. I don't need to go out chasing girls anymore because I'm satisfied. I don't need to go and try to find purpose because I'm satisfied. I found it in Christ. I found it in the Son of Promise. And if I died right now, Nothing on my bucket list matters. Because the most important thing God handled. Could you imagine if you're like, look at God, whatever you do. I know the rapture is coming. Could you not make it today? I'm still not married. Still haven't gotten a job yet. Still haven't, you know, I'm almost buying that car. Whatever, you know, could you imagine God going, yeah, I'll, I'll wait for you so you can leave it. <laughs> I'm satisfied. Now listen to this, verse 31. Joseph said to his, by the way, he thought he was dead. Notice the statement, by the way, in verse 30, and that is, a senior face because you're alive. I think that's a really profound statement. Do you know why I'm so satisfied in Jesus? It isn't because he died for me, because he's alive. A dead person doesn't satisfy. A dead person may pay, but a live person satisfies. And a living God is all the more profoundly and perfectly. So Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go and tell Pharaoh and say to all my brothers and those of my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, which by the way we really learn is an abomination. The two things we will learn that are an abomination to the Egyptians are Hebrews and shepherds, and they're both. And now you kind of go, how, what? How does that work? Well, you get the history. Back in Genesis 12, Abraham went down there, lied about his wife being his sister, and all kinds of plagues hit them. And then finally he said, hey, you lied to me. He goes, yeah, you're right. And then he left. And he left with, by the way, an Egyptian maidservant. But that Egyptian maidservant has a boy. And his boy's name is Ishmael. And he'll send him down and he'll get an Egyptian bride down there. And then the next time you see Hebrews, to be honest, will be when they sell Joseph down there and all this trouble comes about. You can see why they hate the, you know, the Hebrews in that sense. And the fact they were always shepherds. So in that, it's like, look, but you want to tell them that. In other words, even though the world's going to hate you for who you are. The king isn't. So when he says, what's your occupation? Be honest. That's what Joseph is saying. Don't lie. Don't lie. Tell him you're shepherds. You will say your servants, your servants' occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, so when the king asks you who you really are, just be honest. You know what else I have? Not only do I have guidance, not only do I have a Goshen, not only do I have a greeting, but I have a go-between. And this is one of the beautiful things. The word what we might say is an intercessor. And I realize in Romans 8.34 it says, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he lives Jesus loves to pray for you. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, also is praying for you. With groans that can't be uttered. Which, by the way, means can't make a noise. The Holy Spirit is praying in a way you can't even hear. Well, what about the Father? Well, someone has to be there to receive those prayers. Did you get the idea that the entire Trinity is involved in praying for you? Two-thirds of it is praying for you, the other third is receiving it? Think about that. How rigged of a thing is that? Don't be afraid to come to the king, who you are. So Joseph went and he told Pharaoh, and he said, My father and my 
brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from his brothers. I'm not too sure which five he picked. The Bible doesn't say. And he presented them to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? Here's the test. And they said, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. But therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Goshen, again, is the only place that's still fertile. It's the only place where there's actually anything growing. There's the only place where there's any fruitfulness. And so you can understand the idea. It's like, look at, if you'd have said, well, actually, what we do is we make necklaces out of hemp. Well, then you'd be like, well, you can go over in Camden. But for the people who are shepherds, we need a place where there's something that's being fruitful. It's just like, what we really, we want the best land. And here's the ironic thing. Did you get this? The most abominable people on the side of the Egyptians are getting the very best land of Egypt. Do you find that a little strange? Well, with that in mind, it says, and we'll kind of, we're starting to bring this around here. And so they said to Pharaoh, we've come to dwell in the land. There's no pasture. May we have the land of Goshen. Verse 5, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Not only do I get guidance and Goshen and a greeting and a go-between, I get goodness. And you know what's interesting? Isn't that the way Psalm 23 ends? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I don't find that by accident. And it so walks with what we have here. The king turns to Joseph, the son of promise, and he says, Oh, don't just give him good. Give him the best. And by the way, if you think, why isn't God giving me the best? The best is clearly an Austin Martin with a convertible on a V8. Because the best in God's estimation is not always the best in your estimation. The best in God's estimation is that which brings you closest to Him. And I remind you, do you remember what Goshen means? It means to draw near. And by the way, that's going to be the end. If having that will actually get you more chicks, but keep you farther from the Christ, it's not the best thing. To win the lottery, if that makes you rely on yourself and not on the Lord, that's not the best thing. Well, with that in mind, have the best. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. As you know, any competent man among you, let them be chief herdsmen over my livestock. And I wonder about this statement. He's saying to Joseph, if you know any good shepherds, but do you remember at the beginning when Joseph was 17, he went and saw his brothers who were shepherds and brought back a bad report. Then dad sends him to a second set of brothers, and when they go to them, they're the ones who throw him in a well, take his coat and sort of say, maybe it was, you know, and you kind of, I wonder if Joseph's like, no, they're not really going to get that kind of reference from me. You know, I mean, which, well, which one of these, I don't think any of them are good shepherds. I'll keep that in mind, boss. Now, it says in verse 7, and we're going to go, by the way, to verse 12. That's as far as we'll get today. And we'll, we'll flip on 13 just for a second and compare something. Joseph brought his father Jacob. Oh, not Israel? You ever have those moments where you're standing before a dignitary and the easiest thing to do is how to result back, resort back to the old person because you think that person's a little bit more charming or hip or smooth or cool or whatever? Uh, God makes really clear here Jacob at this moment is flipped a little bit. Now, a little less Israel, a little less trusting, and a little bit more in his own hands. By the way, he'll bless as Jacob, which tells me it wasn't that what Jacob was doing, what Israel was doing was something, bestowing God's grace. And someone can bless you for their own purposes. Jacob said it before Pharaoh, Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Jacob asked, and this is something I learned about Jacob. How old are you? How old are you? He says, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. His grandpa died at 175, his dad at 180. He's 130. He's kind of like I'm a spring chicken here at my grandpa's dad. But notice this statement. Few and evil have been my days. That's Jacob speaking. Compare the two. Israel says, I'm complete. I'm satisfied. Jacob says, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. 
right? I mean, he's, he's like, let me tell you about, oh, the pain. Let me tell you about the betrayal. No. Put that in your lap for a second. If you were to go and say, if I were to say, and I won't ask you the word about, the three most vivid memories in your past. How many of those are great? How many of those, I mean, you can, you know, there's certain memories you can start telling and you'll start to cry because you still feel the pain. Beloved, beloved, that's a Jacob that dwells in us. That's the old person. The new person was complete. He's like, let me tell you about the miracles that I've just seen around me. The old person says, let me tell you about how rough my life's been. You know what? There are certain places you can go where the whole purpose of you getting together was about talking about how rough your life was instead of how amazing it is to be saved now. And if you want to build your whole life on the tombstone you came from, expect to live a lot like Jacob. If you want to actually set your sights forward on the one person that God is making you, the masterpiece he's making you, expect to live more like Israel. Does that sort of make sense? Imagine this guy's 130. You'd like to think he's mature enough, but you know, here's the ironic thing. He's got 17 years to go. He doesn't know that. We do. We've read the text. So he doesn't know me. I mean, he's like, I could die any moment now. So he's like, let me tell you, it's been a really rough life. I'm like, yeah, but you just said a moment ago you would have been happy to die, complete to die in the moment you are because you finally saw your son alive again. And you can imagine, could you, I mean, that was fresh on his lips. And now all of a sudden, he's not going to say, let me tell you how amazing it is to see my son alive after all of this. What an amazing God I serve. What a great moment for testimony. But unfortunately, Israel isn't speaking Jacob is. And that can happen to every one of us. Some God calls you in an appointment with someone, and they're going to ask you, tell me about your life. And you're going to be like, it's really rough today. Why? Well, I got a parking ticket, or well, let me tell you what, I forgot to tap in, or let me tell you what, and like, that could be the, the series, and it's like your joy relies, is, is reliant on whether or not someone's going to beat your oyster, or whether someone's going to take a look, or whether or not there's, there was one too many people who cut you off, and then the doors closed, so you had to wait five more minutes for the next train. And the world goes, and exactly, how do you have something I don't? Oh, God, make us more Israel and less Jacob in this. Because we are prone. And you know what? We can build our relationships as Christians in a way that we can encourage the Jacob in each other. Paul says, look, I haven't attained the place I want to be, but this I do have. I leave what is behind and I press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, as long as I'm looking forward, things look good. Now, he blesses Pharaoh. And then verse 11, it says, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and he gave them possession of the land of Egypt and the best of the land of Horemesis, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, last thing, verses 12 and 13. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread. Notice that's here. Literally, he gave them abundance according to the number in their family. Verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land. Did you get that? The, this becomes the pivot for the rest of the chapter we'll look at next week, God willing, unless the Lord comes back and he can teach it infinitely better than I will. But in this, here's the idea. But up to verse 12, I get the idea of being in Joseph's family is exactly where you want to be. Because it ends with us getting in, dwelling in the very best of land. None of our animals are dying. And we're given abundance of everything we need to live on versus the rest of the world outside who's going to die in the famine around us unless they keep surrendering stuff. Now let me ask you, first of all, first simple question, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you, do you belong to a church? We don't even have a membership. Welcome to come, I'd love you to, but do you, are you a member of the family? How do you, how do you get there? Again, let me remind you, adopted you could be you will be born again you're born again you've accepted the marriage offer of Jesus Christ his death and resurrection here we have if you have accepted that gift are you the family if you haven't in just a moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yes to him now listen if you are not sure you can be. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, how are you living? Are you living like Jacob? Or are you living like Israel? 
Because we are the only ones who live in abundance, live in the very best of it. So I want to pray for us that God would continue to slay the Jacob in us, that we wouldn't be living in the past. And by the way, you can't change it. And I mean, and I'm, I don't want to make light of anything that's happened to you. If something horrible happened to you at 13, nothing you're going to do is going to make it less horrible. It's horrible, it's horrible, I agree with you. The issue is, how do I sever myself as much as possible from that so that I can become what God wants to make me? Because clearly, God doesn't want me living in that place. Can we leave the world we came from to be the person who wants to make us? That's this side of it. And then finally, at the end of it all, can we be the kind of person that so lives in the satisfaction the son of promise, so that we're not chasing after the foolish things of this world. Well, just pray. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you so much for the beauty of this time, the glory of your word. Lord, here we are. We've gone through this beautiful text as we see, Lord, the benefits of this family. And God, I just pray for every person in here, myself included, that there would be nobody, Lord, nobody that walks out of here, not a member of that family. And what we, as we look around this room, one thing we can be very aware of, and Lord, is that your family is diverse, it's weird, it's eclectic, and there's certainly room for, for more. And I am so thankful, Lord, that as I look around this room, I, I don't think that... Wow, only God only takes tall people or short people or, or Westerners or Easterners or, or people that speak perfect English or people that live perfect lives or any of that. But Lord, you are just you are so open to adopting anybody that is willing to accept the payment for them of your son. And I'm so thankful for the way that you have shown the benefits. And they're just some of the many benefits, of the countless benefits of being part of your family, but I do want to thank you. And I pray again first for anyone who's still deciding, figuring out whether or not they want to accept this gift. What do you have to say no to? If all you're looking at is the cross and you're thinking, I may have to give up this or I may have to give up that. Well, what about the empty tomb? What about what God wants to do to give you, to replace? He's not a God of nuts. He's a God of instead of how he wants to replace those empty, deleterious, and destructive things with something good. And if today you want to reaffirm your commitment to God, if today you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, or you're not sure if you ever have, but you want to be sure, pray this prayer with me. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, I ask for a resounding, confident amen. And what you're saying is... I agree, let that prayer be my prayer, let those words be my words, so be it in my life. And therefore I ask you to listen, so that you can see, can I say yes to that? And here it is, God I confess to you I'm not perfect, I've done wrong, and you as a righteous judge have the right to punish all wrongdoing. But you love me, your word says that you love me and you want me so much. That you, would, that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind, all mankind, which includes mine. So I accept the gift of Jesus Christ, confessing Jesus as my payment, as my ransom, as my redemption. But Jesus, you didn't just die on the cross. You rose again from the grave, and in doing so, you offer me a brand new life. One now with you as my Lord. So I confess you as my Lord. I surrender myself to you, knowing that in you is satisfaction. So I ask you to satisfy me, to fill me completely, and replace those empty things in my life with yourself, the one thing that can really satisfy, and then that make me absolutely yours. Father, adopt me as your own. I want to be born again by your Spirit. Jesus, have me as your love, that every part of the Trinity I would be in one way or another related to, and through this. And I thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for adopting me as I say yes to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for having me to be born again through you or by you. And Jesus, thank you for calling me as your own. And so I say yes to you now, in the name of Jesus, my Savior. If you agree, I ask you to say, God, right now, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, be them brand new or be them someone who have walked with you for a while. Lord, I just pray right now that we would continue to shed the Jacob that we once were, 
And we continue to embrace the Israel you're making us. And in that, God, I recognize that there is one guy here that that was satisfied in you. And that's the satisfaction I want to have right now. I want the world to see that satisfaction. I don't want to dwell in the past. And, And the past may be rough. But Lord, I just pray that I will not build my life on that anymore. But instead, that today I would actually say, God, make me the person that is so content in you that the world would say, what do you have? And so in that, Lord, just keep me, Lord, from from dwelling on the past, the place the enemy may build a camp even at this moment. So God, I just pray right now that you would really make me the person you intend for me to be. Continue to shape me into that which brings you great glory. In Jesus, in your name, and I ask you to say, Amen. Friends, believe it or not, we have a couple minutes, and so what I thought we would end with today, it only makes sense, is to sing Psalm 23. Doesn't that sort of make sense? So if you would, guess what? You get to stand again. How's that? Um, and then that gives Lauren a moment to find it. By the way, can I just say this? Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to go through the Word with you and the honor of being your pastor. It is a gift to me. It really, really is. So thank you for that.